0: So to introduce today's scripture, you have to really use your imagination first in terms of the weather, um, because as we all watch the news and our prayers go out to people on the East Coast and these incredible winter storms that are happening, blizzards in fact, um, you know, sometimes I know in Iowa we joke about how panicked other people get with just a little bit of snow, but I think we all can see it's really serious when you're not prepared for it, and we're very blessed in our community to have folks who take such good care of the roads for us. So as we come out of this winter wonderland in which we exist and which is even hitting Florida, God help them, um, I want you to imagine a different world, which is first century Palestine, which is um, a little town that is probably near Galilee. And Galilee was a fishing village. And this story is about the very first public miracle that Jesus does in his adult ministry. It's like this is his opening public declaration, in a sense, or action. Um, This is a, a too trivial a comparison, but it gives you a little hint. It's like when a presidential candidate announces, right? Like all of a sudden after this, all eyes are going to be on Jesus, He performs his very first miracle. What is it? Is it a healing or something of huge importance? No, as you're going to hear, he's at a wedding with his mother Mary, and they run out of wine, and Jesus is going to turn water into wine, a big clay pot, maybe about as big as that thing right down there, full of water. He turns it into wine, and that is his first miracle. The wedding probably um, was a feast and it would have been outdoors and all this would have been very public because when you got married back in the day, everybody was invited. So this was his first miracle. It only appears, by the way, in the Gospel of John. It is not mentioned in the other three Gospels.
1: The Scripture In John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you or to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the chief steward so they took it and when the steward tasted the water and that had come become wine and did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew the steward called the bridegroom and said to him everyone else serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk but you have kept the good wine until now. And Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him.
0: Each of the four gospels obviously comes from a different community and therefore has sort of a different tone and flavor. And of all the Gospels, John is the most mysterious. Um, John is very interested in signs and predictions. And so this is Jesus' first sign, a clue that he is more than an ordinary human being, that he has come to do something spectacular and divine. John looks for signs everywhere, and you see them in the Gospel of John. And just because this wasn't recorded in the other Gospels doesn't mean it didn't happen. It's just these were different communities who collected different stories. And sometimes they repeat themselves, and sometimes they don't. The tradition, though, of weddings back in the first century, well, it was different then. Today, when we uh, think of a wedding, um, at least those of us here in church probably picture a wedding happening here. Now, uh, we don't have a center aisle, because the old Congregationalists historically uh, hated the Christians who had center aisles, and so they built their churches differently. They didn't like processions of any kind. In fact, the early Congregationalists actually didn't approve of church weddings. They thought it was a civil matter of the state and didn't need to be in a church. But earlier in the history of the Catholic Church, there had become a tradition of couples that were betrothed and would come and receive a blessing at the side door of the church by a priest, and that sort of had morphed into weddings inside of churches. But it has certainly not always been the case. I actually would say, by the way, having performed uh, a number of weddings in this beautiful church, I love the fact that we don't have a center aisle because what it means is that uh, the couple and the party get to come in on one side and see everybody, and then they get to go out on the other just out of curiosity, who do we have in church today? Who was married in this church? Danny, Chuck, who's that? Oh yeah, the McDermotts. Yep, yeah. Travis and Michael. Who else? Oh, the white. Oh my gosh, Chuck and Mark. A lot of you. Gosh, did you meet at church? No, I'm just. Kidding. <laughs> so, um, but it actually ends up being a very beautiful way to do a wedding. But. All of that is is a relatively recent invention. And if you went back to early Judaism, um, this is how they would have done it. The first step was basically an economic contract or negotiation. So this is a very different world. What would happen is a bridegroom or potential bridegroom's family would go and negotiate with the family of the bride, and they would determine a bride price. And that was the money that the groom had to bring to the bride's family in order to get the bride. And when that covenant agreement was um, signed, if you will, the the way they signed it was they had a cup of wine, and the fathers would share the cup of wine and that was the sign of their covenant that they had made between the two families then the the woman the bride to be would um, be sort of separated off with her family they would wait a period of time to make sure she was pure that was part of the deal and um, and make sure she wasn't you know already pregnant something like this right and um, and then eventually they would exchange the bride price, they would exchange the the funds, and the tradition went like this, that they would pick a day of the wedding feast and everybody would be invited. I mean, um, I know there's, a lot of y'all are from small towns, and I know in rural communities that still can be the case, that if there's a wedding, everybody gets invited to the, the party, But, um, but usually that doesn't happen as much these days. But back then, It was sort of a public event, and you looked forward to any kind of wedding, so everyone would be there. But unlike our system, where um, sometimes it will fall to the bride's family to host it, you know, those traditions are all changing anyway. But, But in this case, it was the groom whose family hosted the wedding feast. And everyone would be invited. But what would happen is they'd pick the day, that night, And the groom and the groomsmen would march in a rowdy procession. Um, They would go and they would pick up the bride and she would be carried out and brought back to the wedding feast. And everybody would celebrate together and have a rip-roaring time. And then at a certain moment, you know, the most awkward moment in the wedding is usually like, I think, you know, the awkward like toast where the best man gets really nervous and stuff. Weddings were way more awkward in the first century because there's a certain moment where the couple then would leave, go into this room, consummate the marriage, during the wedding reception. You know, it's like, okay, first we're going to cut the cake, and then what do we do? Oh, yeah, okay, then we go do that. So they would go do that while the wedding party waited outside. Then the groom would come out and announce that everything had gone fine. And then they come back to the party. Like, how awkward is that? It's just creepy. But they come back to the party, and, um, and that was their new life together. There were blessings that were said. Um, there's a chuppah, a beautiful thing that they would stand under. But there was no point at which like, they went into a temple or a synagogue and walked down an aisle. It was basically like you were betrothed and then you had your feast. This, by the way, would have been the status of Mary and Joseph at the time that Jesus was born. They were betrothed to one another, promised one another, but not yet having had that wedding feast and finished the deal, which is why the fact that Mary becomes pregnant would be so controversial and would have been grounds for Joseph to say, I want my money back, the deal is off. But these were the traditions of the wedding ceremony. So it was infused with religion and the Holy Spirit, but not in a building. It was probably like they were all outside enjoying this feast together. As much as I love church weddings, there is something really beautiful about that Jewish tradition, and it's a theological belief, too. They didn't just believe that you should invite everybody to be nice. They actually have in the Jewish tradition an understanding that the wedding feast is a foretaste of heaven. And that when we invite everybody to this banquet, even people we may not like, even people we don't get along with, even, you know, weird relatives, etc., when everyone's gathered, that is a foretaste of heaven, and it brings shalom or peace into the world. It was a leveling of the playing field economically and spiritually, a reminder that in God's eyes we are really all the same and that we are all guests in this world. That part, I think, is beautiful. These days, traditions around weddings are changing constantly. I mean, you all have been to weddings where you don't need a minister to get married. You've been able to go get married by a justice of the peace, but also now your friend can perform your wedding ceremony, a relative can. There's all these changing traditions, and A lot of times, people don't have a church home to get married in. But not only is the mechanism of marriage changing, probably what has changed most dramatically is how couples find each other. How do you meet that person you're going to spend your life with? Chances are, like, Michael and Travis's dads didn't sign an economic contract, right? Like, you know, y'all are grown, <laughs> and, you know, chances are that doesn't happen, right? We have vestiges of some of that tradition sometimes where like one, the, one member of the couple will go to the parents and ask permission, and that's a beautiful tradition as well, but it goes back to that sort of economic understanding. But nowadays, um, you know, we've changed things. Some people will uh, have a father walk them down the aisle, others will have both parents. You know, it's, it's, it's so flexible now. And most of all though is how do we meet? Most of us did not meet because our parents made an arrangement with another family for us to marry. They've, there actually have been some studies, though, by the way, on arranged marriages, and statistically, they actually do pretty well, is what they say. So, um, but, but most of us don't participate in that social order. We meet people in other ways. In the Christian tradition, we did bring the weddings in the church. The Congregationalists got over their antipathy toward weddings, and now we do weddings, we celebrate weddings, we love weddings. They're some of the happiest occasions. And one of the things in the Christian tradition that we do say is that it is still a service of worship. So if a couple says, um, you know, I'd like my reading to be a poem or something from literature, great, but I'll say make sure we also have scripture. You know, it's still reverent. It's still a worship service. And also, I think, there's a reverence in planning for a wedding, where you look together at what the service will be like, and it's sort of a planning for seeing how you will, how you will function in real life. And then the wedding rehearsal, where the pastor meets all the parents and in-laws, is like a real crystal ball <laughs> for the future. Um... I remember um, my own wedding where my mother tried to literally like wrestle control of the whole ceremony from the minister, like to the extent that she was standing in front of the minister and telling us where to go. And the minister, like, I couldn't believe it. That was the first miracle I ever saw this minister perform. She got my mother to sit down. (laughs) But I remember my mother said, Lillian, you're too young to plan waiting. You don't know what you're doing. And she said, You have to understand this is my special day. <laughs> and one day you will grow up and you will have children and you'll get your special day. So. Some people will criticize, um, particularly North American culture, for how much gets spent on weddings and the, you know all the, all the trappings and all of that. Um, but also there's sort of a sense that like, Sometimes you worry that a couple has fallen in love with the wedding planning and the event itself, maybe more than they know each other. This struggle to know, how do you know if you found the right person, um, finds its way into reality television, of course, which I only watch in order to instruct you on scriptural matters. And so, the, the best ones like this. So there's a show that's, you know, where you're married at first sight, and they have this team, and one of them is a pastor, another is a psychologist, you know, I forget, but they've got a team of experts, and they'll have a call, like they'll come to a city, like they could come to, you know, Atlanta, and Hundreds of people show up and get interviewed and tested with personality tests and what are your spiritual beliefs and how many children do you want to have one day, etc. And these experts pick a few couples and match them together and the couples literally don't meet each other until they walk down the aisle and get married. And, you know, part of sort of what's fun about watching this show is you're just watching the faces of the family members in attendance, just like, you know, this is a disaster, right? Um, but they follow them, and remarkably, some of them work out. But also, I think what that shows you is that we're in a period in society where we're just so unsure about what a good relationship is and how to find one, and that there are, you know, and these are intelligent um, bright people with good jobs and achievements, but but they have decided they don't know what they're doing in this area, and they are willing to give this decision to experts. There are all kinds of others like that, but another one that's an interesting one was called um, Love is Blind, and in this one, these uh, couples were not allowed to see each other, and so they would spend, like, a few weeks, like, sort of going on these dates with different people, but the date was like you were each in your own room and there was a wall between you couldn't see. And along the way, they eliminate and they choose and ends up like, you know, they pick each other and then they meet and they've never seen each other. And then it it says, you know, what is the role of sort of physical appeal in all of this? And could you choose that way? So in some ways, I think... um, we are not all that different from the people in Jesus' day who, who said, I don't know. I don't know. And there are all kinds of forces that might bring you together in something beautiful or something hard. But this was the celebration, and it might be the celebration of the year in Cana. And it's at this celebration that Jesus sort of emerges in his public role. And even the the dialogue is kind of funny, like family dynamics, you know, the overbearing mother. They're at this wedding, and, you know, they run out of wine, and Mary's like, Jesus, I know you could do something about this. And he's like, Ma, stop bothering me. And she's like, no, you know you could do it. Come on. Go ahead, just like do a little miracle, you know. I've been telling all the neighbors. You never do it in front of them. And you can see he's like, woman, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. He's sassy. So here's another revelation. Jesus was rude to his mother at this wedding. When we say he is entirely divine and entirely human, the human part of him was rude to his mother. And he might have felt bad about it because then eventually he's like, okay, ma, I'll go, like, get this cistern, like, get some water out of it. Now, if you remember the story, this wasn't just like turning on the tap. This was water that was supposed to be for the Jewish rites of purification. It was special water. So it might be a little bit as if um, if there were a baptism font, somebody coming in and just saying, okay, I'll take some of this water, right? So that would be the first thing that would have surprised people, shocked them even. But then he, like, transforms it into wine and the steward who's like the host of the party he takes a look at the wine and this really was the system right they would serve the best wine at the beginning let people perhaps get a little overserved, and then they would like put out the plonk and that's kind of like you know you've done it don't don't be you know the mystery bottle that's been sitting there forever suddenly emerges. Um, This is what they did. And so this wine steward, he tastes this. He goes, this wine is fantastic. This is like, I don't know. I don't even know what's a very famous wine. What's a famous wine? Like, what is it? Nerf de Pop or something? Chateau Nerf de (laughs) Pop? What? Huh? Chateau Nerf de Pop. Thank you. You see? Somebody knows. Okay. (laughs) So it's like it tastes like that. It like, tastes like that. Oh, and by the way, like, yeah, I come by my lack of knowledge about wine pretty honestly. I once, I literally went, a friend of mine decided to have a wine tasting at her house, and none of us, you know, could afford the expensive wine, so she said all the wines will be under $15, um, and we're going to, like, write down, is it, the, the, what it smells like and tastes like, and the labels are covered up, and And then we were supposed to all vote on which one we liked and just, you know, you swish it around your mouth and all this. And and she then surprised us and said, one of these bottles costs $100. So everything else is like two-buck chuck and then there's like the $100 one. And, um, And we all tasted all of them and stuff and to a one we all labeled as the nastiest, the wine we liked the least was the $100 one. So basically, like, it was wasted on us, right? We, you know, we didn't, need that. But, but for somebody who's a real wine connoisseur, they'll immediately pick up on that. And that's what the steward picks up on and says, this is crazy. This is crazy. There have been times where this story about Jesus um, has come up in Christian debates in this country around um, the teetotaler movement. There were times in Christian history, particularly led by Methodist women, um, who really uh, wanted to take the stance that Christians should not drink. And it was actually, for a lot of these women, it was very much a social justice issue. I mean, these were guys who were spending their money at the bar, Um, they might have been abusive. There um, There were a lot of other social forces at play. But then for those who said, we don't agree, they would always say, look, Jesus. not only did Jesus drink wine, Jesus' first miracle was to create wine. So surely Jesus is not anti-wine. The fact that this is Jesus' first miracle, by the way, at the wedding, it's not a sacrament in our tradition, a wedding. In the Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments. In ours, only two. Uh, One is communion, and the other is baptism. Because we define a sacrament as something that Jesus did. But a lot of times, people will say, well, what about the wedding in Cana? Jesus was there, but he didn't perform the wedding. Right? Remember, this was like a household event that didn't involve an institution. The fact that Jesus begins his life with this first miracle, one that is sort of almost frivolous, right, was actually loaded with important symbolism. And remember I told you John is the, is the gospel of signs? So if you already know the wedding feast is a taste of the heavenly banquet and it's about justice and sharing with others, um, The metaphors go on and on. And later in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, there are images of brides and bridegrooms. And the most important, though, is this. That joyful moment of the wedding, that joyful sharing of the good wine, it all began with the two fathers at some point when they signed that covenant with one another, taking a cup and drinking of it together to make the marriage covenant. This is the foreshadowing for the night before Jesus dies, and when he takes the cup at the Last Supper, he takes it up to share, and they all think about the covenants that bind families in the wedding ritual. And that's why he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. No longer a symbol of a contract or even an economic relationship, but now a new covenant between God and God's beloved people. Amen.